All right. Good morning. So uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, grab it and open it up. There should be a Bible in the chairs underneath you somewhere, potentially. Um, And uh, if not, the words will be on the screen. And Revelation is the last book of the Bible. So it's at the very end and pretty easy to find. Um, So Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 8 through 11. And I'm going to read that for us real quick as we get started. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So there's this man who once lived overseas in a place that's uh, it's really hostile to Christianity. And he was a pastor there, and really he was an influential church leader in the region. And the perse- persecution in the area just became so intense that many of his own church members were being routinely just taken from their homes and killed in the streets. And eventually, because of his influence as a pastor and a Christian leader, the authorities wanted to make a spectacle of him by executing him publicly. And so uh, the church kind of caught wind of this scheme before it happened. And so they, they tried to hide him. They took him and they hid him out in this house out in the country and tried to just get him away and hide him as long as possible. And for many days, the authorities spent all of their resources to find this man, to track him down. They even tortured other Christians to try to figure out where he was hiding. And eventually, they caught up with him. And as they surrounded the house where he was hidden, they were surprised. Because the man wasn't quite as they had pictured him to be. So they find this man, and what they find is this old, frail man, about 90 years old. And even more shocking, as they entered the house to take him, he began to prepare them a meal and to serve them. And he asked that they would eat as much as they want, like an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? And his only request was that he would have an hour to pray before they took him off to his execution. And they just looked at each other confused as to why so much energy and effort was put into killing this old man who was so gracious and kind and godly in the face of his oppressors. So after his hour of prayer, they bound him and they took him into the city. And on the way, they were just so moved with pity that they tried to persuade him. They were like, just, just renounce your faith in Jesus, even if you still believe. Like, surely, what's the worst that can happen? It'll be okay. You'll have your life. And he's like, no, he refused. 
And eventually they brought him before this large crowd that had gathered together, just united in their hatred for Christians. And the leader of the area, he approached and kind of proudly called out for the man to curse Jesus. And really hoping that his apostasy or his falling away from faith would be more of an embarrassment to Christianity than just executing this leader. But he responded like this. For 86 years, I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I will tell you plainly, I am a Christian. Why do you hesitate? Do what you want. So in rage, the leader decided that he was going to burn this man alive. And before the fire was lit, the old man prayed with a loud voice. And he said, I bless you for counting me worthy of this day and hour. May I be received into your presence today a rich and acceptable sacrifice as you have prepared. And so this gentle old man who devoted his life to Jesus was killed. And instead of being an embarrassment to the church or the cause of of stumbling to others to turn away from Jesus, it strengthened the church. And it led to many people, even who were there that day, to place their faith in Jesus. So here's the question. What could give someone that kind of strength and courage to face death like that? What could move someone to serve his oppressors and even as a frail old man to face death for Jesus with such boldness and grace? Well, this old man, he was once a boy. And as a boy, his church received a letter from the risen Jesus. The very letter we just read a few minutes ago. The man's name was Polycarp, which isn't a really cool name, but it was his name nonetheless. And Polycarp had become the leader of the church in Smyrna some years after this letter was written. And this letter that we just read, it prepared him for the day of his death. It prepared him for that day, the story we just heard, because Jesus gave him a new way to look at suffering and death. And so in Revelation chapters 2 through 3, we find seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches in the first century. And all these churches are in this area called Asia Minor. And as we, last week we looked at the first letter, which was to the church in Ephesus. And the next city kind of on this postal route, if someone was to take letters um, and start in Ephesus, the next city they would come to is Smyrna. So this church, this is the only place in the entire Bible that we read about the church in Smyrna. We have no idea how it started. We have no idea who its leaders were. We have no idea anything else about the church in Scripture. But what we find in this letter is so different from what we found in the first letter to Ephesus. Jesus, he praised the Ephesians 
for the good things that were going on in their church. And, but he also, at the same time, what did he do? He rebuked them for abandoning their first love. But to the Smyrnians, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't correct them. He, in fact, this is one of two letters in this whole section that does not include some form of rebuke or correction from Jesus. So one of the few churches that Jesus writes to, he doesn't say, hey guys, here's where you've gone off the rails. And even more fascinating, there's not really much of a commendation here either. Uh, he doesn't really commend them for anything that they're doing other than to say that they're spiritually rich. And he just kind of says it in a really cryptic way and then just kind of moves on. He doesn't mention their patient endurance. He doesn't mention their toil. He, he doesn't mention their faithfulness like he did to the Ephesian church. But instead in this letter, we find something just very different. In Smyrna, we find a church that's marked by great suffering. Great suffering. So let's read it again, verses 8 and 9. And so the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus doesn't talk to them about what they have done. Instead, he's talking to them about what is being done to them. He points out their tribulation, which is a way of saying their oppression or their affliction. He points out their poverty and the slander that's made against them. And in all of these things, what he's pointing out is the intense persecution this church was experiencing. So from history, what we know about the city of Smyrna was that Smyrna was devoted to Caesar and the Roman Empire. I mean, they had a temple literally to Rome that they would make sacrifices to. They had a temple to this Roman emperor, Tiberius, that they would make sacrifices to. And as was the custom, they would frequently demand that citizens demonstrate their loyalty to the emperor by making sacrifices to him as a god. So they would light a little incense, they would make a sacrifice, and they would declare, Caesar is Lord. And typically, Jews were actually exempt from this because they kind of had some legal protection from the government. And Christians try to come underneath that, and the Jews, which are mentioned in here, they kind of basically enticed the Roman government against the Christians. They basically said, those people, they're not really Jews. You know what we should do? You should make them sacrifice. You should make them sacrifice to Caesar as a god. But Christians, they just, they just refuse. They wouldn't do that because Jesus alone is Lord. And as a result, the city of Smyrna saw these Christians as a threat. They saw them as, as someone who could eventually go into rebellion. They saw this as treason. And so these Christians that we're reading about, they experienced different degrees of suspicion and persecution from their neighbors. So sometimes what that meant was people just wouldn't do business with them. And that led to poverty and economic struggles. Other times they would be robbed or their house, their property would just be pillaged. Some were physically beaten, kidnapped, 
or experience some other tactic to try to coerce them into submission and compromise. And so, to the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your suffering. I know your persecution. I know your poverty. I know what you're going through. But then he goes on. And he says, but actually the worst is about to happen. So in verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. So in essence, what Jesus is saying here is, hey, I know what you're going through. I know the affliction and suffering you have, and it's about to get worse. It's about to intensify. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison, and at the end of that road is death and execution. That's what's coming for you. Now, I think it's pretty clear that in our culture and context, we don't experience the same kind of suffering that the church in Smyrna experienced. Uh, we don't typically have people asking us to make an offering or sacrifice to some ruler as a god or they're going to kill us. We pretty much can come here and worship in peace without any worry of imprisonment or martyrdom. But this letter is still so, so helpful to us because every single one of us, we're either in a season of suffering or we will face a season of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. All of us have probably experienced suffering in our life, and we will experience suffering again. Some, you know, some preachers out there, they preach a gospel where they say, trust in Jesus, come to Jesus, and you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, Things will go great. It'll just be so much better. You'll get everything that you want. Just, just proclaim those good things. Have faith, and it'll get better. But this is, that's the exact opposite of what these Christians experienced. These Christians in Smyrna, being a follower of Jesus, didn't exempt them from suffering. If anything, being a follower of Jesus invited suffering and intensified their suffering. It would have been so much easier for them to just throw off Jesus and live life. Been so much easier. Everyone will experience suffering in this life. And even in our church, we currently go through things of suffering. So just, you know, just for example of some things, we have, we have families who are dealing with a spouse who was unfaithful. We have people who are dealing with poverty and having to decide and figure out how to make ends meet. Others in our church have recently experienced death of family members. And they're trying to figure out how to go on without this person that they've lived their life with. Other people in the church are just struggling with faith. 
and struggling with what it means to follow Jesus. Even just one of our pastors, Sean, um, as most of you know, he's going through a season of suffering, him and his family. He recently found out there's some issues with his heart, and uh, in a matter of 10 days, he's going to be having open heart surgery. And we are experiencing suffering, and we will experience more. Having stories like this is not uncommon in the church. It's not uncommon. All of us have to deal and face the reality of suffering. Our bodies are going to break. People are going to sin against us. There's going to be car crashes. There's going to be loneliness. There's going to be depression. Things just don't go the way that they should be. And all of us, one day, will face death. And all of us, one day, are going to have to stare down that last enemy. So I don't know what you're currently dealing with, or what you will deal with, but I do know that suffering will come, and Jesus wants to prepare us for that day. He wants to prepare us for that day. So how does Jesus speak to the Smyrnians in this season of suffering? Well, Jesus looks at them. He knows what they're going through. He knows what they're dealing with. He sees the suffering that's about to come. And Jesus has a message for them, which is also a message for us. And Jesus, what he wants to do is he wants to reframe the way that we see suffering. He wants to give us new eyes. He wants to invite us to look at some realities that we typically ignore or don't even realize are going on. He wants us to see our suffering in a new light. And so, there's a a few things that I think Jesus, in this letter, is wanting us to see. First, There is spiritual evil at work behind our suffering. There's spiritual evil at work behind our suffering. So let's pick it back up in verse 9. So Jesus again, he starts, says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then skip down a little bit in verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So here's a question. Who is causing the suffering of, uh, of the church in Smyrna? Well, the Jews and the Romans, right? They're the ones who are causing their suffering. But Jesus just starts talking crazy, Right? Jesus, he says, oh, so those Jews, you know what they are? They're actually a synagogue of Satan. Okay, (laughs) that's something, right? Um, And to top it off, he says, actually, it's not the Romans who are going to throw you in prison. It's the devil who's going to throw you in prison, right? I mean, what is, 
going on here? Is Jesus trying to get in a bar fight? Like, what is going on? He's calling people Satan and devil and everything else. Here's the deal. It's from the vantage point of the Smyrnians, there are these people out there that are causing their suffering. But Jesus wants to give them a wider perspective. And from his perspective, it's not so much that there's these people out there causing suffering, but it's what he's going to call Satan or the devil causing it. In other words, what's happening to this church is a result of spiritual forces of evil at work. The Jews and the Romans, they're just merely pawns in this greater game at play. There are spiritual forces of evil intending to tempt the Smyrnians away from Jesus, and they're going to use suffering and persecution to do it. Jesus wants us to see that there is this enemy that wants to destroy us and wants to shipwreck our faith. In Scripture, we see these evil beings using governments and laws and people to try to pressure the people of God out of faith. And so the ultimate problem is not some people out there that might want to hurt us or destroy us. But instead, it's like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's what this means. There is something deeper and evil behind our suffering. There's something going on that we are oblivious to, that we just don't see. And the book of Revelation, I mean the whole book is going to be using pictures and metaphors to help us see this reality that there's an enemy seeking to destroy us. And this enemy, they're going to use suffering to try to drive us away from Jesus. Satan and his demons, they want to leave us exhausted, questioning God, and disillusioned with life. And, and these beings, they want to be the ones to offer worldly pleasure as a relief from our suffering. There is a war going on that we can't see for our very souls. And if so, what that means is, like Paul said, the weapons we wield are not swords or political power or better planning and discipline, but deeper faith and hope and love in Jesus. So here's the deal. Some of the, exper- some of the suffering that you're experiencing is coming from this enemy. And the way that the Bible, and specifically Revelation, describes this enemy is he's like a mortally wounded enemy just lashing out. In fact, later on in Revelation, it's going to describe Satan as being in this cosmic battle, and he gets thrown down the earth and defeated. And this is the warning that goes out 
is there's a warning that goes out that says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So there's an enemy who has already been defeated by Jesus and the cross, but he's wanting us to believe that he has the upper hand. But ultimately, this enemy is already bleeding out at our feet. So in wrestling with this reality, C.S. Lewis, he, he puts it like this, just in, in, in our hard time in believing this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Inhale a materialist and a magician with the same delight. Here's the deal. Is we've been so influenced by our materialistic worldview that we just don't see the spiritual realities behind things. Again, this doesn't mean that there's a devil behind every bush. This doesn't mean that the reason you lost your car keys this morning was because some demon took them and hid them, right? That's probably not what happened. Um, but the reality is, is that most of the people in this room, and I'd probably venture to say 99% of the people in this room, don't deal with overseeing Satan and demons behind everything. Most of the people in this room deal with seeing nothing as is a result of demonic influence or attack. And our Western worldview has influenced us and duped us out of this more than we realize. I mean, Christians just a few hundred years ago, for, for the past, I don't know how long, since before the 1700s, all of them saw the world as a spiritual landscape where things were going on we couldn't see. And we just don't, we just don't do that today. For instance, when you look at our current just political climate, right, with all the vitriol and the outrage and the lashing out and the identity politics and the paranoia, what we tend to think is, these people out there are crazy. And if they would just listen to me, they would be all right. And so I'll just write this Facebook post and solve the world, right? If they just did A, B, and C, our country would be better. But when you really look at it, and you step back, and you think about it with new eyes, you can't help but think that there are spiritual forces of evil behind where culture currently is. When you see the level of anxiety, and rage, and oppression, and depression that is produced in people, it's just astounding. There are things going on that we rarely think about in our society, and that's to our detriment. But on a more personal level, haven't you had moments in your life, especially those of you who are followers of Jesus, where it just felt like wave after wave after wave of affliction? Life was going great, and then all of a sudden, it just all comes at once. Just be aware there's a spiritual enemy at work. And even if he's not the cause of all your suffering, he will try to use every ounce of your suffering to pull you away from Jesus. And I've felt this in my own life. I've seen it in people. 
when devastating things happen, when you're overwhelmed by affliction, there will be a temptation to turn your back on Jesus. And so Jesus, he wants us to realize that this is there. He wants us to see it. He wants us to know about it. But there's more that Jesus wants us to see. So, first he wants us to see that there's spiritual evil at work behind our suffering. But second, he wants us to see that in an even greater way, God is at work behind our suffering. God is at work behind our suffering. So, let's, let's pick it up in verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. So, Jesus, he sees this coming persecution, and he sees that some of them are going to be sent to prison, and even to death, and he sees what Satan and the devil is doing behind this, and their purposes, and he says the Lord has even greater purposes. And the way he puts it is he says that all this is happening that you may be tested. So what does this mean? So don't think of like a pop quiz here, right? It's not what he's saying. Don't think of even, I'm going to put you in some situation like candid camera and just see how you act. That's not what's going on. But when the Bible uses this phrase of testing or trial, most often it's talking about this trying and this testing of precious metals in a fire. You see, a lot of precious metals like gold and silver, in their natural state, they come with all these impurities. There's all these other things mixed in. And so what you have to do is you have to actually melt it down so you can remove the dross or the impurities that's found in the metal. And then after doing so, what you have is something much purer and richer than you had before. And over and over again in Scripture, God is going to say that he uses suffering to try or to refine our faith like this. Jesus, he knows our suffering. He knows what we're going through. But it's not like his hands are tied. It's not like he sees all this spiritual evil at work and goes, man, I wish I could do something about it. But instead, God allows suffering to happen in our lives. He is at work even through what the enemy is doing. He has purpose behind it, and the purpose, at least here that's mentioned, is to try and refine our faith. And as we experience affliction, our faith is refined, and we come out as changed people. There's just something about suffering that just brings out this depth to people, right? There's just something about suffering. I don't know about you, but for me, most of the time when things are going great for a long period of time and I don't experience suffering, the temptation there is for my heart to just grow cold and my affection, just, I, I just go through the motions. Like, and I start losing the weightiness of life and what's going on. But when, if, when affliction comes, it's like it wakes us up to reality. To all of the things that matter. All of a sudden, 
when we have no place else to go, the love and grace of Jesus meet us in a fresh way. I mean, this has been one of the most encouraging things about seeing Sean walk through the season of suffering is to see the way that the Lord is deepening him and growing him through this. The things that the Lord's revealing to him, the things he said himself, it's just like, prayer means more, scripture means more. These things I'm clinging on to. Affliction does something to us that deepens us and refines us. And at the end of it, all these impurities, they get removed. They get removed. John Stott, he put it like this. What Satan proposes, God permits. For God, too, has his purposes in suffering. And although the details of his purpose are often obscure, his general intention is clear. Our adversary tempts in order to destroy. Our father tests in order to refine. As gold is purified of dross in the furnace— so the fires of persecution can purge our Christian faith and strengthen our Christian character. We need to look beyond the trial to the purpose, beyond the pain of the chastening to its profit. So there's one more thing that I think Jesus wants us to see in this letter. So there's spiritual evil at work behind our suffering, and even greater way God is at work behind our suffering. And the last thing I think that he wants us to see is that Jesus himself walks with us in our suffering. Jesus walks with us in our suffering. So he starts off this letter in verse 9. What does he say? I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander. Jesus begins every one of these seven letters with the words, I know. But uniquely in this letter, he's, again, he's not trying to show how aware he is of different deeds that they're doing. He's trying to show that he knows their suffering. He knows their suffering. And by this knowing, he isn't saying, hey guys, in my mind, I'm aware that you're going through suffering. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I know what you're going through, and my heart is moved with compassion for you. It reminds me of in the Exodus story when the people of Israel are held captive as slaves to the Egyptians. They cry out to God because of their oppression. And it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard they're groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Jesus, he's, he's not just aware of our suffering, but he knows. He knows. And in an even greater way, it's not just that he is moved for us, but Jesus so identifies with his people that when we suffer, he suffers. When we experience affliction, he experiences affliction. 
when these Christians in Smyrna were persecuted, he himself was being persecuted. He knows their tribulation. I mean, isn't this what Jesus told Paul, right? Paul was on the road to persecute more Christians, and Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? He's like, I am Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Jesus so identifies with us that as we walk through the fires of this life, Jesus walks through those with us. He is not absent. He is not unconcerned. He is not distant and way out there somewhere. Jesus knows. As you walk through infertility, Jesus knows. As you go through illness and bad prognosis and cancer, Jesus knows. He knows. His heart is moved. He feels what you are going through. And there's nothing that you have experienced that Jesus doesn't know. When we suffer, he suffers with us. And so this kind of reframing of suffering, this helping the Smyrnians see what's going on behind their suffering, Jesus really gives them two charges or exhortations or encouragements. And I, I can't help but believe that Polycarp, like we talked about at the beginning, that he had these two things ringing in his mind as he went to his death. The first thing, Jesus says, beginning of verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. This is really a call to each one of us, because as I said before, suffering is going to happen to us in the future. We are all about to suffer something, whether sooner or later. And there's nothing that won't work out for God's good purposes. There's nothing that Jesus is surprised by. And when you know that Jesus is with you in your suffering, and he's walking with you in your suffering, and he's refining you through that, it changes everything. It changes everything. We can begin to walk in life without this anxiety. We don't have to fear the suffering that's to come. And when that day comes, we can not only face our suffering, but begin to embrace our suffering and walk with Jesus through it. So Jesus, he encourages them to, with courage and boldness, fear not what you're about to suffer. Trust me. Trust me. And the second thing he leaves, leaves them with is this. He says, later on in verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus, he writes to them, and he promises that death is going to come for some of them soon, real soon. And he promises them this, that on the other side of death, they're going to find life. They're going to find life. Hey, guys, these people, 
They're not just fictional characters. These Christians, they're real people. They have families. They had hopes. They had dreams. They lived life. They wanted to avoid pain as much as we do. They were human beings like us. And Jesus is saying, you guys are going to go through, you're going to die. People are going to kill you. But on the other side of that is life like you can never dream. What you've always longed to hold on to, Jesus is offering you that. And one day, on the other side of death, you will see Jesus giving you the crown of life. And what helps us with this, in the way that we can receive this charge, is by remembering Jesus himself is the one who tasted death for us and lived. Right? Jesus, how does he introduce himself? What does he say? He says, I'm the one who died and came to life. And another way that can be translated, which I think is even better, is Jesus says, I am the one who became dead and lived. He is the one who walked through the fires of death for us. He lived for us. He suffered for us. He was persecuted for us. He carried our sorrows. And he dies for us that he might give us the crown of life. He does it all. And so he calls us. He says, be faithful unto death. And he doesn't call us to do anything he himself hasn't done because he was faithful to us unto death. And he offers us life. He says, trust in me and I will give you life. Have faith in me unto death and you will receive life. 